0: from WBUR Boston and
1: Slate. Welcome to The Checkup, our solidly reported, but slightly opinionated take on health news
0: for you and your family. This week, we raised the question, why is it so damned hard to speak freely and ask the questions you really want to ask with your doctor. And what
1: is it about that white coat that makes even those of us who are a little pushy when it comes to medical care? Speak for yourself, Rachel. Well, yes. But why do we clam up in the exam room? Wait, you really do that? Well, I'm pretty much a pain when it comes to pushing back, especially when it comes to my kids' medical care. But I often see others, particularly members of my family, who are fairly aggressive in life but they just completely defer to doctors. I think it's a common phenomenon.
0: It is, and actually, Rachel, I have to fess up that I am a wimp in the exam room. But enough about both of us. Right. Let's let's begin with someone else's very dramatic personal account that highlights the challenges of communication between patients and doctors. So Alikair Peltonen is a part-time administrative assistant at the Harvard School of Public Health and a journalism student at the Harvard Extension School, a, a very promising one, I might add. Thank you. So her personal medical saga involves a chunk the size of a baseball that was removed from her thigh. But let's have her tell it herself. care Right. So I guess we can start with the
2: craziest point where they're closing up this baseball sized hole in my leg and everything's going according to plan. And then I get this jolt of pain shot all the way everywhere. My tunnel vision, kaleidoscope, the whole nine. It was horrible. And there were tranquilizers involved because I the last thing I clearly remember is sort of crying hysterically and apologizing to my nurse that I couldn't be stronger for her. So, like, you're worried about the nurse when you're, like, losing consciousness from pain. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't expected that because I'd watched everything up until this point and thought uh-huh. it was very cool, but the local anesthetic, I guess, was not deep enough. Uh-huh. So, they gave me tranquilizers and painkillers, and when I came out of my haze, they handed me to my husband with a list of prescriptions and some, you know, wound care instructions. Uh-huh. and. Then I went home.
0: They sent you home.
2: And in, you know, in the fog, I remember thinking, what the hell happened in there? Uh-huh. But you didn't ask it at the time. I didn't. I didn't feel like I had the authority in the room to ask what was going on. uh uh-huh. Okay, so let's go back to
0: the beginning of your story.
2: Sure. So I had, you know, a blemish on the inside of my thigh, and I thought it was a pimple, to be honest, and it (laughs) didn't go away. So I saw a regular dermatologist, and the dermatologist said it was a benign fibroma. Take it off. Don't take it off. It's not going to grow anymore or do anything. And so I went for quite some time, about six years, not doing anything about it, and then I decided uh, to have it removed, and I had it removed, and then... About a week later, I was sitting in my office by myself, and I got a phone call from the dermatology office, and they said, it's not a benign fibroma. It is a dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans. What the heck is that? Which is exactly what I said. And they wouldn't say the word cancer, but they said that it was a sarcoma and that I would need surgery to remove it. And so I said, I have cancer? And they said, well, yes, but very, very treatable. You know, no chemo, no radiation, just the surgery, and you'll be fine. And meanwhile,
0: they're telling you this over the phone. And I thought to myself,
2: do we really do this over the phone now? Because it seems like that would be a face-to-face conversation. Mm -hmm. So then you go in, you have the... I had a Mohs procedure, which was the standard MO for this type of cancer. Mm -hmm. Took all day. They removed a great deal, about 15% of my thigh. And the final round of... Uh, Tissue that they took needed to be tested and they didn't know how long it would take, but it could be days and through those days You're also you're asking yourself, right? Why am I sitting here? Why am I not admitted? Is this dangerous? Mm -hmm. Lots of questions went through my head and I didn't call to ask not once did I pick up the phone (laughs) I just thought I don't want to bother anybody and they would tell me if this is wrong Mm -hmm. and then over a period of about six months the site underneath the scar kept swelling hugely swelling. And I went in to the surgeon about four times to have it drained. And then on the fourth Drainage. I got an infection, which landed me in the hospital for three days. And the doctors keep coming in. They tell you the doctors would come in and say, your leg looks great. It's getting better. We're going to keep you for a little bit longer for observation. And then they would leave. And what did you want to ask? And I wanted to ask, but why is this happening? What is this? And is this going to keep happening Mm -hmm. once I leave here? Mm -hmm. And there were no answers because there
0: were no questions. I didn't ask and they didn't ask. Right. And... So now, six years later, you did a bunch of reporting to find out exactly what happened. And I gather that you decided that there wasn't actually a medical error in that operation.
2: There's nothing went wrong with my actual surgery. It was the patient-doctor communication that surrounded it that broke down. Like how? What happened? there were a series of conversations that I thought were necessary. And I didn't initiate them because I was scared. And they didn't initiate them for whatever reason. And so they didn't
0: happen. And just to expand outward for a moment, like this isn't just about your curiosity. In fact, it's like a major problem in the healthcare system, right? True. Yeah. I
2: I work at the Harvard School of Public Health. So I had the ability to sit down with Lucian Leap, who is a Uh, expert on medical errors, but also patient safety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he told me that this is really one of the biggest causes of errors in treatment, people not following their treatment, because they just don't have the right conversations. One one expert called it
0: conversation deficit disorder, right? That doctors have. Yeah. So you're okay now, right? And you actually did track down your surgeon. I did. And had coffee with him. Did that clarify anything for you? I think it clarified a little
2: for both of us. We discussed what could have been done better. We discussed the word fear. And you know, surgeons, I think, are not so excited about using that word because <laughs> they're afraid that it'll, it will introduce fears that maybe weren't there to begin with. But right. my contention is if you're going in for surgery, afraid and fear are fine. Those words are floating around in your head anyway. It's probably fine to talk about that. And I felt I could have used hey, what are you afraid of? Mm-hmm. What
0: are you afraid of going forward? What are your fears? And we'll talk later about the doctor's point of view, by the way. But what about us patients in the meanwhile? What would you say, a la care? Like, what are we supposed to do to have better talks with our doctors? What I try and do now,
2: my sort of take on it, is I try and picture the paper gown on my body. I try and picture the paper gown on my brain as well. And so when a doctor <laughs> says, you know, let's have a look you got to drop them both. And you've got to, the things that pop into your head, find a way to shut down the fear and just blurt it out. Worst that can happen is that they don't have the answer that you want to hear.
0: Well, you are inspiring because I have to admit that I'm really bad about this. I do not ask the things on my mind because I also, I, I often feel like, oh, this doctor is so rushed. They don't have time. How dare I take up more
2: of their time? You sort of feel like you don't have the authority in the room to ask those questions. They're Doctors are very authoritative, which they have to be, but it does tend to, we put them on pedestals and we do tend to become intimidated in the room because you always think of the questions afterwards, Yes, that's true. You go home and you have a laundry list of things that you you want to ask. But (laughs) then you can't email them. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. We may shut ourselves down on that too. It's very easy to find an email address for a doctor. So it may make sense to try that. If you think of a question when you get home, shoot them an email. What's the worst that could happen? Carrie, it's so
1: fascinating to me that such intelligent people, faced with some of the most important decisions of their lives, completely withdraw in front of doctors. It's almost a kind of infantilizing going on in the old doctor as God thing. And I guess it's just very hard
0: to shake. I guess it is fascinating. And it can be hard for doctors to shake, too, because to some extent, they've been trained to sort of rise above human concerns. This was dramatized beautifully by William Hurt in The Doctor from 1991.
2: There's a danger in feeling too strongly about your patients. The danger of becoming too involved, I Surgery is about judgment. And to judge, you have to be detached.
3: But isn't it unnatural not to become involved with the patient?
2: There's nothing natural about surgery. You're cutting open someone's body. Is that natural? One day you'll have your hands around someone's heart, and it's beating. And you'll think, uh-oh, I shouldn't be here. Well, then all the more reason to care about what the patient feels. Caring is all about time. When you've got 30 seconds before some guy bleeds out, I'd rather you cut straight and cared less.
0: Dr. Jo Shapiro is the director of this new Center for Professionalism and Peer Support at Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. And she's really good at explaining the emotional side of being a doctor.
3: You know, this is a challenge for us as physicians. My expertise is in thinking about why as physicians and other healthcare providers we don't have those conversations. I've had such a a lot of experience in helping my colleagues have difficult conversations with patients that I'm going to extrapolate. We do better when things go routinely. (laughs) I think we feel good about what we've done and are just more open to uh, having conversations. If things don't go as planned, let's say in this case, maybe the lesion was much, much more extensive and they had to take out much more than they had anticipated. That sometimes leads to a feeling of embarrassment, discomfort, and when it's really bad, if, something, if we're involved in care that really did not go well, we, we can feel very shamed. What that does, unfortunately, unless you recognize that feeling and are able to put it away, at least temporarily, it can lead you to avoiding contact with the patient, avoiding a conversation, maybe not showing up in person for the follow-up visit, something where unconsciously you you just don't want to be there because you feel terrible about what happened. I'm not saying that's the exact case here, but this does happen to us. I know that as a f- practicing surgeon myself. It's hard to face when you don't do the work that you think should have been done in a sense, perfectly.
0: One of the most interesting parts of Ella Care's story, I thought, was that she got to actually have coffee with her surgeon. And one thing that that she said was, well, why didn't you just ask me what I feared? And he said, well, I wouldn't want to ask you what you feared, because that might make you more afraid. So Dr. Shapiro, how would you respond to that?
3: I think that there, that's a parallel to what I was saying earlier, that, people, physicians, in some ways feel like if we delve too much, if we tell you too much about what could go wrong, that you might lose trust or you might have emotions that for you are unnecessary, that, that kind of fear or trepidation. And I think we're afraid to open Pandora's box that way. So
0: Rachel, Dr. Shapiro shared a really central concept about how whatever words they use, doctors can signal to patients that they're opening a channel of communication for questions and concerns.
3: There's another way to do this, and it's not as complicated as knowing what a patient might be thinking and worried about but isn't saying. And that is stop at the end or even in the middle of an explanation and say, it's important to me that you tell me what you're thinking and also if you have any questions. Is there anything else about this that you need to hear? When I set something up with the patient, I'm explicitly saying, both explicitly and and implicitly, your questions and your concerns are important to me and I want to hear them whenever they come up. And that's something every single physician should know how to do.
1: Okay, Carrie, so we've got the doctor's perspective, and we've got the patient's perspective. And here's a very intimate story from a doctor who's also a patient. Just like William Hurt in The Doctor. Right. Mm -hmm. Dr. Annie Brewster is an internist in Boston, and she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis over a decade ago. But when a doctor prescribed some very intense medications for her, she decided to push back and say no to her own physician.
4: So I was first diagnosed in 2001. I went in, and I was told that I had probable MS, and I was told to start disease-modifying therapy immediately. Initially, I actually sort of ran away from the doctor's office because I wasn't ready to hear that, and I didn't go back until 2005 and actually didn't start medicines until 2006. I never felt there was much of a a dialogue about options. It was sort of disease-modifying therapy, medication, or nothing, and I, I never felt that I was presented with other forms of management, such as diet or stress management or sleep improvement or things like that that maybe aren't as clear cut and haven't been measured, but I think certainly can help with diseases such as MS in particular, which are autoimmune. I have to say that I wasn't very good about pressing the issue. and I mean, I left and I didn't go back, but that wasn't really dialoguing with my physicians about my ambivalence. I didn't feel safe to do that for some reason, and I I definitely take some of that responsibility. But I I think it's interesting that uh, I think a lot of patients don't feel that they can push and ask questions and disagree. So I was on three different medications since 2006, and the most recent experience I had was a once-weekly injection, and I did it for three weeks, and I was so ambivalent I didn't sleep well because I had such a bad headache and I had such bad body aches, and then I lost the whole next day because of fatigue and continued body aches and headaches, and I had felt really, really well beforehand. So for me, it just seemed suddenly more clear-cut because my symptoms had been so mild, Haven't been sure that I really needed that medication. I think quality of life uh, is really important. And most recently, when I was started on this medicine that I had the really bad side effects to, I, I again, didn't really feel like the context of my life was being fully understood. And I did try to express that and say, I I don't really have a lifestyle that's going to allow for me to lose two days. I'm working. I have four kids. I'm busy. And that's important to me. I'd rather feel good in the day-to-day right now and risk the chance that maybe my disease will progress then feel crummy when I don't even know if it's helping me. I really struggled with that decision, but uh, I I am going against my doctor's advice, and it's made me think a lot about how to change my practice as a physician and how to better serve my patients. But I think there is a lot working against doctors. Doctors have hardly any time with the patients, and there's liability too. You know, we have that hanging over our heads all the time, and so. Sometimes the, our feeling is we have to recommend what's most aggressive and what's definitely going to cure the illness, and that makes it harder to really step back and think about the whole person. I think context is so important, and I think if, if we can do anything for our patients, it's to really listen more to the stories of their lives try to ask questions and find out what's most important to them. Because for most people, we could assume that maybe keeping disease at bay is the most important thing, but that's not the case for everybody. But I think we have to step back and think about the lives that we're dealing with and listen to our patients. We have to.
0: So, Rachel, I think this idea of treating patients sort of more holistically, of listening more to what the patients themselves want, is taking hold among doctors. It's The catchphrase that you hear is patient-centered care, right?
1: Right. And I think there is a major shift going on in medicine. It may be slow, but I think it's definitely evolving. There's the rise of the patient as a consumer and advocate for their own best interests people are armed, for better or worse, with information from the internet. They come in with their printouts. Waving it. And as we said, the whole doctor on a pedestal as a god from on high really is going out of style.
0: I I can't help but wonder whether this might be connected to more and more doctors being women, although who knows. But what's definitely clear is that it's really happening among younger doctors.
1: Right. Right. One doctor who's on the admissions committee at Harvard Medical School recently told me that there's a definite shift in the understanding of what makes a great doctor, that someone who's really good at the science but really bad at interacting with patients or understanding people or gleaning their needs that person won't make an effective physician. Interesting. And this guy said the message to medical students is really that patients
0: should be encouraged to ask questions and express their concerns. Wow. I mean, it's interesting because I don't feel like I've ever gotten that message from a doctor of like, I want you to ask questions. Really? But I do hope that's the direction things yeah, are going I mean, in. Frankly,
1: I have all female doctors, and they're young. And I really do think you can see a difference. It's interesting.
0: That brings us to the end of season one of The Checkup. And listeners, please let us know what you thought of our first six episodes and what you'd like to hear in the future. You can reach us at podcasts at slate.com. And in the
1: meantime, you can follow us on the Common Health blog at WBUR.org, where we will update you about our plans for future podcasts. Please do. Come to
0: commonhealth.wbur.org.
1: The Checkup is produced at WBUR Boston. Our producer is George Hicks. The executive editor of WBUR.org is
0: John Davidow. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Until we meet again, Rachel. Adieu, Carrie. (laughs) No need to do the drama queen thing, Rachel. Okay.
4: See you later, Carrie. See you, Rachel.